If you've got your Bible, let's turn to John chapter 3. There, starting in verse 1. John tells us, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher. Come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born again when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? And Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we come today and we thank you. We thank you for your word that breathes life into our lives. Father, we pray that much like Nicodemus, we would come this morning wanting to know more, wanting to find you. And yet, Lord, we also pray that we would be willing to find out what it is you're wanting to say to us, that we would not come with our own agenda, we wouldn't come in our own way, but simply when you speak and when you talk, we would listen and we would respond. And that we may know truly what it means to be born again in you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. So every once in a while, people decide that they want to change. A lot of us know what this feels like. For whatever reason, you decide, I want to head in a new direction now. I want to turn over a new leaf. I want to go somewhere different from where I've been. And if we ever find ourselves in this place, there is no greater feeling in the world than the feeling that we actually can. That we can change, that we can go in a new direction, that we can experience something new. But if you're ever in this place and you, there is no worse feeling than the one that you cannot change. For people who feel the need to change something about their lives or about themselves or about what they're going through, about their circumstances, the words of Jesus, born again, 
are exciting and they're life-giving to us. But for those of us, and it's not a minority, who are fine, who are happy with the way that things are, who don't feel the need for a great change, the words born again don't necessarily seem to apply. In the three years that Jesus is going to spend traveling around telling people about the kingdom of God, he is going to attract a lot of attention. He's going to attract large crowds. Lots of people will come to him and want to hear him and want to ask questions of him, ultimately will persecute him. And yet, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the authors of the Gospels, choose to focus so much of their accounts of Jesus' ministry on individuals that he interacts with. A single person coming to him or that he draws out of a crowd or single disciples talking with him. And we're grateful that he does that because it gives us something better to grab onto that we can relate to. We can see in every person's individual circumstances as they come to Jesus or as he talks with them exactly what it is like to actually interact, interact with Jesus himself. Nicodemus is a religious leader. We read at the beginning of John chapter 3, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. He was a ruler of the Jews. He was part of the Sanhedrin. He was wealthy. He was educated. He was one of the most uh, influential Jewish leaders at the time. And he comes meeting Jesus under the cover of darkness, and he does something very unusual. He asks Jesus for nothing. He just comes to him. He isn't sick, and he isn't looking to be healed. He isn't an outcast looking for some kind of compassion or love. He isn't possessed and tormented by evil. He's not some directionless person wandering around saying, Jesus, give me some direction in my life. Give me something to grab onto. I need something to give myself to because of the state of my life right now. Nicodemus is just fine. And he comes to Jesus doing something very unusual, not asking for help, not asking for something from him. A, a, a member of the Jewish Sanhedrin was a person who spent their life dedicated to learning what was true that God said, to learning about the good life, about the way that we ought to be, the way that we ought to live. And as a result, people came to him and wanted to know from him the way that we ought to be, the way that we ought to live. This is the guy with the answers. This is the guy that you look at and say, he's doing very well. This is not the kind of person that you would typically associate with the idea of being a born-again Christian. Now, there's a lot of people in the Jewish church who see Jesus and he comes in and starts to say things that really bother them, right? A lot of members of the Sanhedrin, uh, Jesus walks in and he starts talking about the kingdom of God, making claims about himself, and they freak out. They go, who is this guy? 
Just last week, we read about Jesus coming in and, and cleansing the temple, right? Flipping over tables and making a whip and whipping stuff and getting really upset about things, it seems, and, and saying, what you're doing here is wrong. What you're doing here needs to change. And so understandably, there's a lot of Jewish leaders saying, this guy, Jesus, is crazy. And he is a threat to everything that we hold dear about this religious system that we have devoted ourselves to. Ultimately, those people would be the ones that would be responsible for his death. It would be at their hands. But there are other people involved in the Jewish church who see Jesus come, and he says these things, and he does these things, and they say, there's something about him that shows that he has authority from God. And then he goes and he cleanses the temple, and those very same people probably would say, these are things that I've wondered myself. These are things that I've thought myself. These are things that I've questioned myself. And Nicodemus is a person who looks at Jesus and rather than see him as a threat and something to be afraid of, approaches him one night saying to him, I believe that what you say has authority. And so he seeks him out. Nicodemus comes to Jesus wanting to learn from him. Because he's a teacher, and he wants to learn so that he can be, uh, know more about the way that God wants us to be, about the way that God wants us to live. And so Jesus' response to him, by simply saying, he says, makes a statement, uh, it's clear that you're one who has authority. Jesus says this, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Hang on a second. I am literally coming to you asking nothing. I'm the one guy who's not asking anything from you. And your response to me is that I have to become born again. If I'm even going to see the kingdom of God. I didn't ask you to be healed. I didn't ask you to be forgiven. I just came out of the bushes and I said, I believe you. And your first response is to say, change everything about yourself, change everything about your life. That's the only way that you can even see what I'm talking about. That's not a very great sales pitch. If you want to see my kingdom, you have to be born again. You can't just hear about it. You can't just read about it. You can't just dialogue with other people about it. You have to be born into it. Why would Jesus say this to this person of all the people? Why? Does it maybe have anything to do with the fact that Nicodemus is the person who comes to him without a sense of urgency? That we see people constantly coming to Jesus with urgency, with problems. And Nicodemus comes to him on his own time when it is safe and he says, and he, and he wants to inquire things of him. The truth is, Nicodemus approaches Jesus exactly the way that I would want to approach Jesus in the Gospels. If I had to pick a character and say, I'd like that one. I'd like to not be the person who's lame, who needs to be healed so they can walk. I'd like to not be the leper. I'd like to not be the person who's, uh, who's uh, possessed by a demon. I'd like be the person to, to not be the person who's a social outcast. I'd like to not be the person who's starving and who's homeless. I'd like to not be the person who is even necessarily ready to look for someone to follow. I'd like to be the person who comes out of the bushes and says, you know, comes out of the bushes and says, I believe that you have authority. I believe there's something here. 
This is how we would all want to approach Jesus. This is the most ideal way to approach Jesus, is to be able to come to him and say, let's talk. I've got some questions. Give me some info. I'd like to learn a little bit about this. I'd like to dip my toe in the water and and see if there's anything that I can glean from you and and see if it's nice. And Jesus' response to the person that approaches him without a sense of urgency, without a sense of need, is you have to change everything. You have to be born again if you're going to understand this. And so for so many of us that would want to approach Jesus in this exact way, his response is, you have to be born again. You have to experience some kind of a new birth if you're going to come to me. Nicodemus has no idea what he's talking about. He, he, he tries to wrap his mind around it. Or I can't climb back into my mother's womb, he says, and be born again out of it. And Jesus tries to explain to him that this is not a physical rebirth. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh, of, uh, born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. He says, this new birth is not a physical birth, it's a spiritual birth. You have to be spiritually reborn internally. Oh, okay. Well, if I'm Nicodemus, that's just as impossible as being born physically once again, because that's not how spiritual things work. We all know how being spiritually good works. Spiritual is the inside part of you. It's who you are. It's your soul. It's your, it's your person. And so just like you can't physically be reborn, you don't get to become another person whenever you want to because you think your life needs a new direction. We don't get to start over if we want to. The way spiritual life works is simple. You're born and you start building. You try to be good. You try to do good things. You try to spiritually be a good person. And if you blow it and you mess up for a while, then you've got a lot to make up for. Uh, If you're a prodigal, then maybe become a pastor. If you mess up, then maybe make amends for it. But the best way to do it is to just, starting from day one, try as good as you can to be a good person and to, to seek God, to live the good life and to do the right thing. And the more that you can do this, then spiritually you'll be better. But there isn't a point at which spiritually you get to just say, ah, things aren't going well, let's start over. We're going to start, okay, here we go, start from scratch, do over, and let's go. There is no spiritual rebirth that you can experience. Internally or externally. Because we can't change who we are. This is where the good news comes in. Because what Jesus is telling him is good news. And the good news is this. He says to him, you can be born again. You can be born again of the Spirit and you can become someone new. In fact, you must if you're ever going to even see the kingdom. I can be made new. I can have new life. Nicodemus, this is such great news. You're not going to have to live in sin and death and darkness anymore. You're going to get to be a brand new person. You're going to get to experience real life, not just trying as hard as you can. 
You were here because you knew these guys weren't giving you the whole story. You knew what you were doing. There were some flaws. There were some holes. What Jesus said resonated. So here it is. Here's the truth. You get to experience it. There's only one catch. It is absolutely all or nothing. You've got to give yourself to it completely. I'm not looking for students. I'm not looking for tourists, sightseers, or people that are interested in some of what I have to say and not all of what I have to say. I'm interested in those who know they must be born again. And no matter who you are, you can be born again. No matter who you are, you can experience this new life. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what's going on within. You can be born again. It starts with repentance which is recognizing that you are the problem with everything around us and not everything around us. That, that, that sin is the problem. And I look within my heart and I say, this is messed up. And this is what needs to actually be made new. So repentance is saying, this needs to die and there needs to be something new that comes after it. And I recognize that and so I repent. I turn away from trying as hard as I can or trying in any way or not caring or trying at all to in any way please God or even believe in him or recognize him or acknowledge him. And when I do that, I then believe that, that Jesus, what we're celebrating this week, that what he's done means that I can be forgiven. It means that I can have new life. And I then profess that I'm going to believe in him and I'm going to follow him for the rest of my life. Last week, right after second service, Ian Shea was baptized. And for those of you who stayed after it, you know that he professed faith. He professed these things with his mouth. He said out loud, repentance, I repent. And he acknowledged it. He acknowledged what he believed in and he acknowledged his willingness to commit himself to follow God for the rest of his life because God's not going to back out on him. God's not going to fail him. It's, it's a, it's a one-sided decision. Because the other end of it, we know, won't, won't fail. And so he says and expresses these things because this is what it means to be born again. And then as he's baptized, he's, it, it, it's a symbol of the fact that he is born again into new life and he is now a new person and a new creation. That this is what it means and the good news is anyone can be. It does not matter who you are. It does not matter how good you are or how bad you are. You can be born again. It does not matter what you have done, you can be born again. But there's bad news. And the bad news is, you must be born again. You see, the reason that we know everyone can be born again is because a little bit further along, Jesus says to him, you must be born again. And he cannot say that you must be born again unless there was a way that anyone could be born again, that everyone could be born again. And there is. And so the good news is you can be born again. The bad news is you have to be born again. Every single person in this room must experience the new birth in this life if you are to see the kingdom. Every person walking this earth must experience the new birth if they're going to see and experience the kingdom. Everyone has to be born again if they're going to see or experience the new kingdom, the kingdom of God. And why is that bad news? Well, easy. Because a lot of people don't want to be born again. 
because a lot of us are like, I'm fine. Things are fine. Things are good. Because when we think about being born again, we think about people uh, who need that, right? We think about people whose lives we look at and say, I think they need to be born again. I read a story this last week about a man named Valery who's a Russian and he uh, used to live in Russia. He now lives in the States. Several years ago, he agreed to be part of a groundbreaking medical procedure that was being, uh, under, that was being undergone by an uh, Italian neurosurgeon who claimed that he had developed the technology and the ability to, uh, this man, Valeria, has a uh, wasting muscular and nervous system disease, and as a result of it, he's been confined to a wheelchair his whole life, and his body is basically useless, um, and he, he's a computer programmer that works and lives in Russia, and as a result of his circumstances, he signed on to be the first person ever to have a head-body transplant. And this doctor in Italy has claimed that he has developed the ability, he's developed this adhesive, I'm not making this up, that, ha- that gives you the ability to connect nerves together and that he can connect the nerves in a spinal cord. And as a result of that, he can take a head from a living person, he can attach it to a cadaver, and he can complete a full head and body transplant. And this man has signed on to be the very first candidate to do it. Now, people all over the world have said, neurosurgeons, this is a bad idea. No one should do this. We are not even close to having the technology to do this. I don't think that was even needed. I think you could just look at a picture of the doctor doing the surgery and say, yeah, I'm not sure. Because he has supervillain written all over him, evil surgeon supervillain, right? Listen, it's going to work, but even if it doesn't, either way, I'll be famous, so I think we should move ahead with it, is what this guy's thinking. And all these other neurosurgeons have said, we absolutely should not be doing this. This man should not be doing this. And one neurosurgeon went on record and said, he simply said this, there are far worse things to experience than death from an operation like this. But the man who signed on said, what other choice do I have? Well, this last year, and I was reading an article this last week that said he, uh, he recently, over the last year, fell in love and he got married. He and his wife had a child, and uh, they're raising their baby together now. And uh, the article I was reading was an article on the fact that this man, Valeri, recently pulled out of the operation, saying that he no longer wanted to undergo it. Why? Why had he decided, get, get off this guy. <laughs> Why had he decided? that he no longer wanted to be the subject of the first head and body transplant? It was simple. Because before, he had nothing to lose. And now he had everything to lose. See, when we think about being born again, when we think about dying to ourselves in a new life, it makes a whole lot of sense when you have nothing to lose. It makes a whole lot of sense when things are a mess and all you see it as is a solution to that, which is what we often think of when we think of born again We think of uh, people who really need a new start, who need a fresh start. But that's not Nicodemus. He's not coming to Jesus saying, I need that. I need a new start. I need a, a fresh take on things. No. What if I don't want to be born again? Because what this means that every single person must be is that every single person 
in the church and out of the church must be born again. Every person, every child that is born in our church, no matter how well they are raised by their families and by the church, must be born again in this life if they are going to see and experience the kingdom of God. Do we understand that? Do we understand that we can't do a good enough job for someone else that they'll just be good all the way through and never have to die to themselves? Because I think sometimes we don't think that way. That there's no amount of Christian living, there's no amount of knowledge, there's no track record that gets you in without being born again. Because God has children, but he does not have any grandchildren. That's not the way that it works. The bad news is, and I say bad news because I think for most of us it feels that way, even though it isn't, is that we must be born again. And the difficulty with it is if you're a part of the church especially, or if you're a part of this country, one of the biggest things that you might have going against you becoming born again is familiarity with God and with Jesus and with all of this stuff. The author Dallas Willard said it well when he simply said, familiarity breeds unfamiliarity. You know this if you've been in a relationship with someone that's a deep relationship. You know that the more time you can spend with someone, the more you can get to know them in the day-to-day minutia of things, the more that they're there in the background all the time, the more you can often become unfamiliar with the deepest, truest parts of them. And this is often something that happens with people in the church. This happens to people who are around the teachings of Jesus, who are around the Bible, who are around the name of God. This even happens to people in America, a place that sees itself as a Christian country much of the time, feeling like I'm close enough in proximity that I'm familiar enough. Well, that familiarity can sometimes breed unfamiliarity. And in worst cases, and often this is the case, that familiarity uh, inoculates us against the idea of being born again. You You know what that is to be inoculated against something, to have just a little dose of it? and then to keep you from getting the bigger dose of it later on, to getting hit with it full force? This happens oftentimes. That we have just enough that we think, uh, I'm good, I'm okay, I know enough, I'm around enough, my family counts for enough, my community counts for enough, I serve enough, I do enough, I'm good enough, I'm kind enough. And as a result of that, I'm okay. But the answer to that is that we still have to be born again. So do you believe that you need this, is the question. There there are three kinds of people, ultimately, that we see as a result of this kind of a passage, and really this simple of a teaching by Jesus on the kingdom of God, it splits the world out into fundamentally three different kinds of people, not just two. It splits it into three. The first is this, people, those who must be born again. There are those who absolutely must be born again because they have not yet been. And without the new birth, without the resurrection and the new life, they will perish. And for those who have not been born again, it is the most urgent and important thing that you can do, that you must do. And so we ask ourselves this question, what is it like to be born again? What does it look like to be born again? 
If this is so important and we want to know if maybe we are, if someone around us is, if we want to encourage others to be, what does it look like? The first thing that we see in someone who is born again is this. Your eyes will be open to spiritual things that you didn't see before, that you wouldn't see before. Being a part, Jesus says in himself, if you want to see the kingdom, experience this. Once you do, you can begin to see the kingdom, which means that it will open your eyes. It will give you the ability to understand things that you absolutely were not have comprehended and understood prior to this experience. As a young person in the church, I was, abs- I was basically impervious to the truths that I was hearing about the kingdom of God before I became a Christian. It didn't matter how much information and content was coming towards me, many of these things were bouncing right off of me. They were said, but they weren't heard. And regardless of how much I learned, how many Bible stories that I learned, how many biblical men of God, how many commandments I learned, no matter how many parables I learned and how many verses I memorized, until I was born again, Those things only made so much sense to me until my eyes were opened. Think about it like this. If you're watching something on a TV screen and you're listening to something at the same time, the image that you're watching on the screen will always win out. If you're seeing something in video and hearing something in audio, the video will always win out because that's the way that we work. There is something that takes up our primary focus and then the other things can filter in when there's space. I'll give you a much more realistic example of this. Probably the area where Ellie and I have the least amount of grace towards each other on an ongoing basis is when we're trying to talk to each other but one of us is on our phone, okay? If I start talking to Ellie about something, which I don't do a lot, and so it's important when I talk, okay? When I start talking to Ellie and she has her phone out, I instantly am like, stop, put your phone down, listen. She's like, it's fine, I can listen. I'm here, I'm listening to you. It's fine, keep talking. And I'm like, you're not listening. You're not gonna remember what I'm saying. You're not talking, like, you're, it's important. You gotta listen to me. She's like, hang on, I'm doing something. It's fine, just keep talking, I'm listening. And, and, then, I, and then immediately, I'm like, you're always on your phone. You're on your phone way too much. I have no idea how much Ellie's on her phone, but it doesn't matter. In that moment, it's like clearly she's on her phone way too much because she's not paying attention to the most important person in her life while he's talking to her about something extremely important. No tolerance for it because I know that she's not actually hearing what I'm saying. And then she puts her phone down and she's like, okay, what? I'm like, what what do you mean? She's like, what were you saying? And I'm like, none of it? No. She's like, I wasn't listening. And I'm like, I said you weren't, I I wasn't listening. Just tell me what you were saying. Uh, Do you want to spend your time yelling at me or do you want to just tell me? And I'm like, I just said all of this. Yeah, but I didn't hear because I was, okay, anyway. And I had to do that and now it's done. And I can't multitask. If she starts talking to me, I pick up my phone and I start doing something on it. And she's like, stop, stop it. And I'm like, no, I can pay attention. I can multitask. I'm really good at that. It, it helps me focus. It helps me pay more attention. And she's like, no, stop it. It's disrespectful. You're not listening. You're not paying attention to me. And I'm like, you know, you're always talking, Ellie. You're always talking. We have no tolerance for each other when this happens, but it's because she knows that when I put down my phone, I'll be like, yeah, yeah, totally, yeah. I totally agree, yeah. And then that's it. She's more honest, so she'll be like, what were you saying? I don't know, and I'm not, so I'll just be like, totally, yes, I agree, you know, and I won't know. We lack the ability. When our primary focus is on this thing that we're looking at that's in front of us, we, as much as we want to think we can take in all this other stuff, we can only take in little pieces of it. And this is why a person who is born again, whose identity has actually been given to them by God as a child of his, and now lives in that identity as their primary identity, that person 
can now see and understand things of the kingdom because those things are here. They're not this thing coming in from the side. And that is a huge difference. This is why becoming a Christian and being born again is always the first step that a person should take and it is not the last step that a person should take. This is why we do not say you have to learn all of this stuff and you have to get all of these things right and you have to deal with every single possible doubt or question that you have and you have to get it all out of the way. Then you can decide that you're going to believe in Jesus. No. We say, here is the gospel. It is this simple. Believe in Jesus. Die to yourself. Be born again. And then you can experience the kingdom of God and you will then see this other world that lies behind it. We don't say it's the last step. We don't say it's one of the last steps. We say without that step, it will be hard to grasp and to see these truths about the kingdom of God because that is the nature of the kingdom. You can't see it from the outside. You can't see it with a toe in the water. You have to be a part of it. You have to experience it to be able to see the things that Jesus is talking about, that God's telling us about. What else does it look like to be a part of the kingdom of God is this. Your very identity will change. I just alluded to this. Your identity, who you are, will now be handed to you. It will not be made up by you. You will no longer get to say, I'm this. I am a, I am a combination of all of the things that I want to be about. You will instead have God say to you, this is who you are. Here's a new name tag. Slap it on. You're a part of my family now. You're my child. And that first and foremost defines who you are. That wins out. That's the biggest one. Now, how does that feel, right? To be told by someone else who you are fundamentally. And not to get to say, but this is who I want to be. This is how I want to be seen. For some of us, our entire lives are about trying to construct that very thing who we are. For others of us, our entire lives are about simply trying to figure out that thing. I'm trying to discern, I'm trying to dig deep into my own heart and understand who I am and what makes me tick so that I can be that in the most pure form. Too bad your heart never agrees with itself on anything and that whole process is as confusing at the end as it is at the beginning because there must be something outside of me that tells me who I am. I'll never figure that out just by looking in here. And so to be handed that thing that says, here's who you are now. If you're born again into the kingdom of God, you are first and foremost a child of God. Our identity is first formed by the situation that we're born into. As much as we may want to believe something other than that, the truth is our identity is formed by the country we're born into, the family we're born into, the race that we're born a part of, the, the, the amount of wealth that we're born into, the opportunity that we're born into. Some of the most determining, biggest determining factors in our lives happen before we come out of the womb. How humbling is that for a bunch of people living in a country that want to see ourselves as pulling ourselves up by the bootstraps? But really, it often feels when we look at the rest of the world like I was born in the right place at the right time. That so much of who we are is decided, it seems, by what we're born into, the family and the place and the environment.
And one of the biggest questions that we have in following God is this question, will I be lost in him or will I be found in him? Am I going to fade into the background so much that it's all just him and this spiritual stuff and this church stuff and this religious stuff and I'm just gone now? Or is there some way that I'm actually found in that? Because that's the biggest step of faith for many in choosing to be born again. And the question then is, do we believe that we actually need a new identity? Because you're not going to hand yours over and take another one unless you believe that you need to. The original 13 colonies that, uh, the the British colonies, the English colonies, the the, the, sort of the crown colonies that started in North America in the 1700s, they were all very different from one another. And it depended entirely upon who made up those colonies more than even where they were or the natural resources that they had. The first colony that we know of, Jamestown, was just a disaster. Uh, Ships sent over boatloads of people and they died. And they died in such vast numbers that they had to keep sending ships over constantly with people in order to just replenish the numbers to make up for the fact that every year almost 60% of the people would die. They would die of starvation, they would die of disease, they would die of all sorts of things. And one of the reasons why this happened was because the first groups of people that went over with Jamestown were, you see, in England at the time, uh, the circumstances weren't that great. They were out of land, they were out of resources, they were out of a lot of things, and there was simply nothing for a lot of people to do. So there were tons of people that were wandering the streets. That was their entire life, was growing up on the streets, wandering the streets. They had never learned to trade. They had never had to really work a full-time job. They had never had to really provide for themselves. They spent most of their time begging on the streets, or uh, many of the people, uh, tons of people were incarcerated. Tons of people were in prisons. And so as people would get out of prison and as people were living on the streets with no other option or way, to, or way to live, when they heard about these boats that were going to the new land, even though they heard that it was dangerous, they said, why not? What else do I have? And so they hopped on these boats and they went over. The reason why Jamestown was a failure was largely because of the fact that the majority of people that went over boat after boat after boat had no discernible skills and had not worked a full day in their lives. And their plan, and I'm not joking about this, the plan of many of the people was to hang out during the growing season and then just take food from the Indians after they had grown it. And believe it or not, this didn't always go as planned. And so they often starved through the winter. They were underprepared. People would come over from England to check up on the investment because this was an investment for some very wealthy companies, some large companies that were funding all of this. And they would come over and they would look at these people and they would say, they, uh, they, uh, they're bowling in the street. They're sitting around. They're doing nothing. They're just waiting for something to be provided for them. New England, on the other hand, that was started by the Puritans, was started by this group of people who came wanting to form this pure sort of church. And these people came over with a very different set of skills, with a very different background, and as a result of it, and they also believed in their theology that the harder they worked, the more productive they were, it was an indication that they might be one of the elect of God. And so as a result of that, the work ethic they had and the things they brought into it, their colony thrived much quicker than that of Jamestown. You see, what you see in the stories of these colonies is that it isn't the places they went to that changed things for them. It isn't the natural resources. It changed everything. Getting on a boat and going to a new place and living a new life and starting things fresh didn't change things. It didn't change who you were. It didn't change what you could do. It didn't change the fact that you were or you weren't going to wake up in the morning and say, I'm going to work and try to provide. And those that weren't, didn't. 
and those that were did. You must change your identity. You can't simply have a fresh start with the same one. You can't simply say, oh, I got into where I am or, or I've gotten where I am because, you know, things didn't go well or this person didn't understand or my circumstances weren't what they should have been. No, it's the identity that has to change. And we have to be handed a new one as a child of God. So there are three types of people that we see. The first is those who must be born again. And these are people who... who who see the reality of the kingdom of God now, that they have been handed this new identity and they've been told, this is who you are, everything else comes second. But there are also people, as a result, who, are, who live as born-again children of God. Those who, are, those who are born again can live as born-again children of God. And this is what we're describing. This is what this looks like. It's a glorious thing. But we read about, in Romans chapter 4, that there are others we read this, it's not actually two, it's four. It says, so then uh, Romans 4, 12 through 17 says this. So then brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the spirit are sons of God, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. You see, the truth is, we read about this here in Romans 4, that we can be born again. We can be children of God, given that identity but we can choose to not live that way. Or we can simply find ourselves in a place where we have wandered from that and we are not living as a child of God. And I don't mean by our behavior, I mean by the way that we see ourselves even. What we're talking about here, what we read about here is that there's a way to live by the Spirit and to recognize that I'm an adopted child of God, I'm an heir with Christ. Or there is this spirit of slavery, it says, that comes when you fall back. You fall back to it, it says. So we can actually go back to living like we're in the flesh. We go back to just following a bunch of rules. We go back to thinking that there's something to prove. We go back to being afraid because we think we are not enough anymore. We're not good enough. We get to the point where we go, in the beginning, God treated me like a child and he saw me as a child and, 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 he, and he loved me no matter what happened and he accepted me no matter what happened. But now that I've been doing this for a while, he expects more out of me. Now I'm someone that has to prove something to him. Now I'm someone who has to live a certain way. Now I'm someone other people has to see a certain way. And as a result of that, I live not as a child, but I live as a servant. I live as a slave. And there are many who are born again, but don't live as sons of God or daughters of God or children of God, but instead live as slaves. Because children have nothing to prove. Children have nothing to fear. There is nothing, I think, more difficult in, in adoption. When you begin to talk about the idea of being adopted, because that really is what this birth is like, isn't it? It's like we've been born into one family, into one life, and then there's a point when we have to recognize there's a better one for us, there is a better thing for us, and we are adopted into that, and there is nothing harder than the idea of someone being adopted 
and not accepting that home and that family as theirs. Uh, My biggest fear when we were bringing home our two children was a fear that regardless of what we did or communicated to them, no matter how unconditional our love was for them, that they would ever not feel that they were really a part of our family. It was a fear that haunted me up until we brought them home. Because I know that there are so many stories of children who have done that very thing. Some because the children struggle to just feel like they can actually be a part. To wonder, just because you gave me food today, will you give it to me tomorrow? Just because you care about me today, will you care about me tomorrow? Someone else left me or walked out on me, so will you? And, and, and many a times it's, it's the result of, of adoptive parents who have come in the picture and who haven't provided a loving home, who have taken things away, who have shown them that you can come into a home and it will be taken away from you. But I think there's nothing more tragic in adoption than when that happens. For a child to be a part of a home, to be born into a family, but to not actually live like they are, to revert back to being like a servant or a slave. We see this in the prodigal son. We see this in the son who stayed, who has something to prove to the father by living like a servant, by trying to prove to him by all the things that he does that he's good enough. And then we see it by the son who leaves, who's afraid to come back, who out of fear says, I don't really know that I could be seen as a son of God, a child of God. We're told in Romans 4 that the spirit bears witness about this. Why? Why would the spirit within someone who's born again bear witness again and again saying to us, you're a child of God, you're a child of God, you live in the spirit, you don't live in the flesh, you're not a slave to sin, you're free in the spirit. Why? Why Why would the spirit bear witness to us again and again? Maybe it's as though we need to hear it again and again. We need to be told it again and again, just like we tell our own children, just like we tell our people in our own families, I love you, I love you, I love you. I forgive you, I forgive you. Nothing's changed, nothing's changed. That this is what our father tells us. This is what the spirit tells us again and again because it's hard for us to continue to hold on to that thing. When we don't live this way, Romans says we're living as slaves. It's a spirit of slavery that we fall back into, and it's fear. When we perform and we work for God's approval, when the most we can ever hope for is to earn a fair wage but have no rights, no place, no real home. Yesterday, we had a memorial service for Jean Garut. Jean died at the age of 95. And he lived such an incredible life. I didn't know the half of it until I came to the memorial service because I only knew Gene the last two years of his life. He was the first person I ever, I guess, interacted with from this church as he prayed for the new lead pastor who was to come in the service that I had snuck into to check out this church that I wanted to be the lead pastor of maybe. He prayed for me and my family before I ever even met him. And he started the prayer, God, it's me, Gene. Because that's how he starts prayers. Just in case, you know. And as we were there for this memorial service, it was unbelievable to see the life that this man had lived. A man who at 13 years, his father left their family, and so Gene served as the father for his sisters and helping his mother. He went into the military for World War II for the entirety of the war, and afterwards went to college, became a mechanical engineer. He got married, had children, started a business, built a house while having children and starting a business and living in the house. He raised three wonderful daughters who loved the Lord and he raised a granddaughter when they had to come back into his home and needed some place to stay. 
He built things for people. He, he served in the church. He, did, he, he had like five lives put together into one life. And the most incredible thing, one of the more incredible things I think, this is when we, when we, when we heard about all this and then we got to the slideshow and we started watching the slideshow and it was the most amazing thing to watch. These are some of the pictures that, that we see in the slideshow. And this is Gene with his daughters playing with them. Now, now I've talked with people of this time and I, and, and I know that it is not incredibly common for dads to just get down on the floor and play with their kids all the time of this generation. That a lot of dads didn't have a lot of contact with their kids. That especially dads who started businesses and built houses while their kids were young didn't make time to do this. But every night he was home with his family to have dinner and to play with his daughters and to be in their lives while he did these other things. And I'm watching these pictures and I'm thinking, this is so amazing. Look at this guy. This is what we want, right? This is what we need. This is what's missing in the world. And you hear in Gene's testimony that he became a Christian at the age of 41 with his daughter, who became a Christian at the age of 12, that they together prayed to receive Christ at church one Sunday. And so you're watching this slideshow, and you're watching the life of this man who served his country and, star- and, and did all of these amazing things and produced these beautiful people and did such an incredible job, and you look at this man and you say, that man needed to be born again. That man, the salt of the earth, that man who is the best example of what we can produce as a country, I think, looked at himself and said, I need to die and I need to be made new. I need to turn in the identity that I have and be handed a new one from God because I'm not enough to even see the kingdom. How many of us would tell that person, you need to die to yourself, you need to be born again to see the kingdom of God? I don't know that I would. And how do we know that he did that? How do we know that when he was 41, he actually was born again and became a new person and a new creation? We know that because at his funeral, every time anyone talked about him, they didn't say he was all about family. They didn't say he was all about building and he was all about engineering and he was all about money. They said, or he was all about golf. They said he, his rock was Jesus Christ. They said he lived for Jesus Christ. They said his legacy was Jesus. The thing that he imparted to people was Jesus. You saw it in the lives of his kids, in their, in their eyes when they talked about him. You could not talk about him and look at his life without seeing Jesus. And you ask the question, was he lost in that? I don't think so. I think he was found in it. And this is what it is to be born again. And this is who needs to be born again. Everyone does. The worst and the best. And there are those who are born again and who have been handed that new identity and simply cannot believe that it's actually real. That you are actually a child of God. 
That there is nothing that you can do that will change that. That who you are is not made up of the things that you do. That while those things matter, those things are not who you are. That you could be the greatest person in the world or you could be a pedophile. You could be a poor person or you could be a rich person. You could be someone who has tried time and time and time again to get your act together and still can't seem to do it. You can be addicted to drugs, you can be in prison, or you can have the cleanest, most upright life that anyone would look at and say, I want my kids to look like that person. But that is not who you are. It's not who you are. Who you are is a child of God. Who you are is one who lives in that. That is the first and biggest thing that that, that we see about you and that you can show about yourself. And sadly, there are those of us here today who have been born again, who have experienced that death in life and have drifted away from seeing ourselves as that. Does it mean we're not saved? No. Does it mean that we're not children of God? No. But it means that we live like slaves and we live like servants because we think, for whatever reason, I've got something to prove now. Or for whatever reason, I'm afraid and I don't think that God sees me that way anymore. And I can tell you that that's not true. I'm going to pray and we're going to worship. And as we do, I just want to say, if you do not yet believe, if you have not yet been born again, then there is absolutely nothing that you can do moving forward that would be better, that is better than choosing that right now. You may never get another chance to choose that. And it isn't the last choice that you make, the last decision that you make. It is the first step that you take, is saying, I will die to myself. Saying, God, I recognize that it is not out there, the problem. I recognize that it's within me. I recognize that I have either ignored you or not believed in you or have run from you, or I've been trying as hard as I can to prove something to you. And everyone around me is fooled, but you're not. God, I repent. And I die to myself. And I ask you to take my identity. I'm not going to make it anymore. I'm not going to put it together anymore. I'm not going to try to construct it myself. I'm not going to try to look within to get it. Give me a new name. Make me your child. Adopt me into your family. And show me how to walk forward in the reality of that. Pray that as we sing. Pray that as we worship. Pray that now. And begin walking forward in that today. And you will see the kingdom. And if you have already done that and you have wandered, come back. And if you haven't wandered, praise God and rejoice in him as his child. Jesus says to Nicodemus, if you can't believe the things that you've already experienced, that I've already shown you, the things I've already done that are bringing you here saying, I see you have authority then how can you possibly believe the things that, were, that will come? I believe that God has done something in each and every person's life here to show that he is indeed real, that he is indeed your father. Is it enough for you? To that, Jesus would say, if you, if you cannot believe in what you have already seen and experienced, then how can you believe what you hear moving forward? This is the time. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful that, as, that your kingdom is one that is 
uh, so profoundly different from the one we would construct for ourselves, Lord. We thank you for people like Jean who show us that it isn't a well-lived life that makes us who we are. It is continuing to point to you. And as someone who was with Gene days before he died, I can attest to the fact that the last things that he was speaking of and saying with the last uh, firings of his, of his brain, Lord, were about Jesus and were about you. God, we need you. Bring us to a place where we see that, God. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Lord, you're not interested in students and observers and tourists, God. You're not interested in... um, You're interested in your children coming home to you, Lord. God, the good news of the gospel is what has already been done for us. It's not anything that we're going to do. It is the good news of what we celebrate this week. That your son has given us the ability to have new life in you, to conquer death itself. God, you have conquered death so that we could live again with you. That is good news, Lord. Let us be people who cannot even contain that good news within ourselves. That we would go forth with it, that we would give it to this city, that we would give it to this world. God, you're so good. It's in your name we pray, amen.